Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, hello, hi. It's episode 266. Uh, We're recording this live on December 8th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by two of my esteemed colleagues, uh, Mr. Barry Kirby, who's here every week. Hey Barry, what's up? And we also <laughs> we also have Heidi Mirzad back on the show. Heidi, welcome back. Hello. I'm so happy to have you on this week, especially because this was kind of requested by you. We'll get into it in just a minute. But to give you a preview, we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about the system that keeps pilots from seeking mental health care. We're also going to answer some questions from the community about getting assigned the wrong job title at a new gig beginner jobs before human factors and problematic or dangerous pop science being used by others. But first we got some programming notes. Uh, Hey, you know what? We, we uh, have mentioned this a while back at HFES. If you're unfamiliar, we have made uh, an announcement that human factors minute, our traditionally supporter only podcast is now going public early next year. Uh, So it'll be March 1st. Uh, We have a blog post where you can read more. Uh, details are all on our website there. And next week, we'll have a deep dive into the human factors of uh, fitness technology. That's a good read by one of our lab members. Uh, Morgan worked really hard on that. So go check that out. If you're interested in fitness technology and human factors, there's a lot of intersection there that you might not know about. Barry, what is going on over at uh, 1202, though? So at 12.02, we've got an interview with Tina Worthy. And those of you who are members of the Chad Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors will know who Tina is because she is one of these driving forces behind the entire institution. So I tried to spend half an hour with her to, or an hour with her to try and dive into, get some goss from the background to work out what goes on behind the scenes and and, and try and get some stories. But um, she didn't she didn't really let anything spill, but she gave us some really good insights into just how she works with the volunteers, how she works with the wider organization, and just how much they deliver, considering it's such a small organization. So if you go over to 12.02 after you've listened to this, don't go yet, go after go after this, uh, go and have a listen to that and, and hear what Tina's got to say. I'm so disappointed she didn't give you any hot goss. Anyway, let's, let's get into the news. That's why you're here, right? Let's get them. Yeah, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. Barry, what is the story this week? So this week we talked about the need to change the system that keeps pilots from seeking mental health care. So a recent study of over 3,500 US pilots found that 56% reported avoiding health care specifically to avoiding losing their clearance to fly. This fear is driven by the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, regulations which bar pilots from flying if they report seeking regular talk therapy for even mild anxiety or depression. This can last for months or even years, and the assumption is that they pose an an unacceptable risk to safety. As a result, pilots find themselves among only a handful of professions that require the disclosure of any encounter with the healthcare system, including mental health visits. This can cause pilots to suffer in silence, and the fear of losing their job can prevent them from seeking the help they need. 26% of pilots reported that they withheld information during their FAA health checkups for the same reason, that fear of losing their medical clearance. This issue is is likely to be exacerbated by the growing demand for pilots, which is expected to lead lead to more time away from family and friends, and an increased need for mental health care services. 
Whilst credit is due to the FEA for recently making several positive policy changes related to mental health, this study would suggest that there is still an awful lot more work to do and time is of the essence. So Heidi, as someone who's experienced in this field, what's your reflections on the story? Yeah, so this is this hits real home for me. So I'm um, I'm a graduate of Emory Riddle Aeronautical University, and I went through the flight training there um, with the goal of being a pilot. Uh, admittedly, initially, I did not want to be a commercial pilot. Never was my aspiration. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot, um, and uh, and couldn't make it couldn't cut it. Um, just took years for me to kind of reconcile with the fact that I just couldn't cut it. But um, but one of the reasons why I couldn't seek help to understand like why ambition wasn't enough, why training wasn't enough, why all these things weren't enough was these this, this underlying issue, this deep-rooted issue of mental health being something that is not talked about and so this article interesting speaks about how pilots don't report it right and how pilots kind of get barred from it but this actually starts in flight training right so the very first time you have to go and get your medical certificate in order to fly it's the very first time you're confronted with that with that that rumor mill that that like that talk right do not mention xyz right uh don't talk about that don't talk about this like they're not going to give you your medical so even as a flight student you're already like pushed into that you don't speak about anything you don't mention it it can't be in your health record so from that perspective what happens when you need help right and you know it can't go on your health record what do you do you seek alternative alternates right alternative ideas and while some of them can be very rewarding like you can i ended up having to see so in order to avoid having it in my medical record i ended up seeing the campus like counselor sent counseling center that isn't run by doctors instead just like therapy licensed people right so you would go and see them and just talk but you're just talking about like college life and you know like and so that's how i got like under the radar therapy um but it was very clear very soon that i also needed for some of my mood instabilities i needed medication and but i couldn't get that medication so then what I had to do was seek a doctor outside of the network and outside of my medical certificate to give me the prescription. So you're hiding the prescription, you're hiding your med mental health and you can't speak about it. So if you're already doing that in flight training, what do you think is gonna happen when you get to the level where you're working for an airline, you wanna be promoted, right? All these things. So, and there's like, and you guys are going to have to rein me in at some point because I can go on and on and on because it touches on so many things. It's not just that. It's also, there's a, there's the 15 hour, 
1500 hour minimum that you need to hit, right? So in order to even get a, a, a regional job or any, any kind of job in the cockpit, right? You have to have a minimum in hours. That minimum in hours, you have to finance that. Like mm -hmm. you, you're financing that. So the only way really to logically do that in order to still make money and not have to pay for the hour in your logbook is to be a flight instructor. Well, now you're being a flight instructor and you're flying from, from dusk till dawn, right? So you're always flying, you're always stressed, you're always busy, and you're doing this while you're very young because you want to accumulate your hours. So you're also still in college. Most of them are still in college. I mean, I mean I'm going to say not everybody has the privilege to go to a, like a flight aeronautical university like I did, like where everybody lives and breathes it, right? Where <clears throat> there is also the positive side of it, right? Like there are people who perpetuate positive things like living a healthy lifestyle and all these things, right? But nobody tells you in flight training that you should work out and eat healthy, right? Nobody does that, right? Everybody just wants you to perform, right? So there's this like dichotomy between having a healthy lifestyle and having a healthy surrounding in order to further your mental health, but that's just not the case. You work crazy hours, you work, you're constantly being pushed up and down from your circadian rhythm, right? So what if you work three days on, two days off, you fly, at 4 a.m. in the morning, you have showtime, and then in in seven days, you have a night flight, and so you're also constantly switching. Then there's the hour minimums the airlines give you, right? They might promise you 75 hours like this month, but what if it? What if what if they can't promise you that next month? And you saw the schedule come out, so now you're trying to book in more hours, right? So now you're flying and flying to the exhaustion point, right? And so there's like so many things that come into game with that. And then you add on the pressure of making a living. So what most people don't know is that like when you start off, like Delta pays, I think Delta was one of the worst ones, but like, I don't know what the current figures are. I tried to look them up, but even the ones I found now are like a little bit old, but like <clears throat> Delta only pays $27,000 your first year. So like, you qualify for food stamps, mm. you qualify for assistance. So what do these pilots do? They then have to be, you have to be available in the hub where you get hired, right? So hub means like, where do they have their, their main station basically like, and so you often, what, what I back in the day, again, this could have changed. This was 10 years ago, but back 10 years ago, it was very common for these new pilots to then like rent a room in a hub house. So like you have like 10 roommates, you're circulating through these hub houses because you need to sleep somewhere, right? Um, and you're away from home, right? You're constantly moving and now your mental health is declining, right? Like the environment you live this job in is not necessarily an environment that perpetuates great mental health, right? You're eating unhealthy, right? You're grabbing stuff at the airport. You're drinking caffeine to keep yourself awake, energy drinks, right? You eat these greasy meals from the airport restaurants, right? Like you're gaining weight or you're losing weight, like depending what, what kind of type you are in stress, right? Um, you're, you, you, 
not all of them work out. I mean, I'd love to say, yeah, every pilot gets up in the morning and does an hour on the treadmill to keep their circulation going, right? But that's just not the fact. What if you did a 12 hour and you get home and you're just like, oh my God, I just want to rest for two days. Like, and you fall, you know, into that rhythm. So I think there's just a lot of things that yeah, that article speaks to them underreporting their mental health issues, but what actually led to that? Like, where's the, where, where does this come from? And, and I, that's why, like, I, I, you know, Nick, if you're going to do this topic, <laughs> let me be on because like, yeah. it starts in flight training. Like it literally starts at the beginning where you really are hammered in, like, do not say this. This is a trigger word. Don't mention that. I mean, some don't even report their back aches and their and their knee issues, right? Because if that gets there, and then you now you can't fly. Now they bar you from flying, right? Like, but the funny thing is, I mean, funny is the wrong word, but um, for lack of a better term, is talk therapy could actually be something that helps. Right. Like in this situation, like there could be a therapist who could literally walk you through some of your challenges you have. Right. Like what if it's the what if the it's the I'm stuck in my career. Right. Like I still haven't made captain or, you know, or they're running a horrible schedule. I don't know what I should do, because if I switch airlines, I lose seniority again. Like it's also something the public doesn't really isn't really familiar with. Like it's not just how long have you been in your job your years don't translate. You start with seniority again all over with the next airline, right? You drop in seniority. And so it, there's just a lot of things that this industry is just, it's its so tight knit, like how it works against you. And, and reporting is just something that is not supported in that industry. Like whether it is your mental health or let's be very honest, even mishaps, like, like not a lot of people report if they had an issue, right? They're supposed to, and supposed to be anonymous, right? But not everybody does. So there's a lot of stuff that goes under. And then, and then, I mean, not to, to, to bring up the most horrific incidences, but like, then you see ha things happen like a couple of years ago, when the pilot literally committed suicide by flying the plane into the mountain, right? There were over 100 passengers or over 200 passengers on the aircraft, right? So wh where did that come from? That didn't fester overnight. That didn't happen overnight. It's the environment they live in that this happens in. So I think there's a big conversation to be had, but at the same time, it is 2022, um, I was in flight training in 2006, and this has been something that has been since the 70s, 60s, so it's never changed. It hasn't changed. I don't see the particular steps. I hope it's getting better. Again, I've been out of the aviation industry now for 10 years, so I don't know what has happened over the last 10 years. I just know that the, the issues they deal with, they're still there. 
I mean, the, the hours, the crazy contracts that the airlines give where they don't even have to promise you hours. They give you zero hour contracts. Um, also something the public isn't very familiar with, right? That they can get away with that. They can give you zero hour contracts. Um, but but then there's also things that where the world kind of pushes you. So from my research that I did coming into today, apparently there's been this huge shift in salaries, right? So post pandemic now with the with the pilot shortage, which there's always been a pilot shortage. Um, this is just fascinating that there's now one. There's always been one. Um, it, the, that they're now paying these. I mean, I saw some of the salaries. I'm like, holy moly! Like, had I been promised a salary like that, I might have not, you know, <laughs> given up so quickly, right? But, but I just know that, like, it's a, it's a very, it's a, obviously it's a very personal story for me because I didn't make it, I didn't cut it, and good lord, Instagram or YouTube or whoever, feel free to hammer the comments full with, well, you weren't good enough and da da da, you know, and whatever. I like dust it off now, but it, it is something that I struggled with, and I and I and I really would have loved if I had that support and that support because I really truly believe like it might have been a different outcome for me. I might have been able to continue my ambition I had. I always wanted to be a medevac pilot. Um, that was my dream. And 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 I and I couldn't make it because I didn't see how I was ever going to have a life where I do struggle with mental health. And when I'm in my routine and my therapy and everything, like I'm, I live just like anybody else, right? I'm just as successful or unsuccessful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as anybody one. else. Right? <laughs> but like, but but I have the same struggles, you know. I ate too much over Thanksgiving, and you know all these things. But like, but but I'm fine. And in the aviation industry, I would not be given that. I can't go and be in talk therapy and regular seeking regular mental health support. And so what happens is these these pilots self-medicate. It's it's a known fact. You can pull up the statistics. Alcoholism is very, very prevalent on, uh, amongst pilots. Uh, self-medication with prescription medication, very, very prevalent. Um, upper downers, right? You take an upper to be there. You take a downer to go to sleep because you have to get your sleep in because your next 12 hour shift is coming or the next flight is coming. Um, you know, and the, I mean, I know that there's no, like, I don't want to scare people, but I've heard of like tricks and tips of like how to get rid of this and how to get rid of that and and i'm not going to reveal all of it because i think it's too scared it. to public <laughs> yeah but but i mean it's just like it's just like any other job and i want people to really think about that for a moment right it's just like your surgeon is your surgeon right now self-medicating you know is your is your doctor your 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 lift driver your like there's so many things where you are in a situation, your bus driver, you know, your, your, 
there's so many situations where you trust somebody else with with your safety and you got to count that that person lives in or works in an environment that supports them being well and i don't think the aviation industry is so that that that's my big issue with it like i would love to see a lot change but i think in order for that to happen i think we need to start acknowledging that mental health is just as common of a illness disease like it's i i don't like those words because it's like you know if you have somebody said something the other day that was very interesting to me like somebody said like if you have diabetes right like and and um you're gonna say well in our environment we don't take insulin <laughs> okay and and that's kind of with the mental health like okay I have mental health issues. Well, in our environment, we don't medicate and we don't seek therapy. So you better tough it out, right? Like, what do you think is going to happen? We, we're human. We're all human. We all have our struggles. And whether it is a temporary um, episode you're going through, right, and temporary sadness, a temporary grief or um, whatever it is, a life tragedy that happens, life event, like, a lot of people also don't understand mental health fully. So like it can be things that are very common um, life events that might have a different trigger effect on somebody than on the other. Right. Um, so you might be going through something for a while. But, you know, if you get the right help, you come out of it again. But if you don't, you can spiral into an extreme darkness. And then what? You know, how do you get yourself out of that? And so that's kind of the thing that that I really just wonder, what are we doing, you know? And so, like, yeah. what are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was a very concise initial thoughts, Heidi. Uh, I can't wait to get into the detailed uh, <laughs> discussion. No, honestly, honestly, um, you yeah. know, we we kind of bounce around here at the at the beginning normally, but I felt like today it was really important to get your opinion on this because this is something that you've lived through. This is something that you have experience with. For me, I don't really have any insight into this. Like I, I put sarcastically in here, real positive and uplifting story this week. Um, and yikes, I had no idea about this. This sucks. Like this is awful that uh, yeah. these pilots are in this system that they can't get out of uh, because this is this is what they want to do. And then by the time if they do want to switch gears, you know, then then they might need to uproot their whole career and go into something else and it's just it it sucks to be trapped in this system but barry i see you got a couple notes here i want to make sure you have some time to talk about your notes here thank you uh yeah <laughs> i mean in the, in the grand scheme of things i mean it's i think heidi's done a really good job in summing um the breadth of the issues up but fundamentally for me it boils down to we just don't deal with mental health we don't give the compassion it deserves um because it's largely still unknown we still we you know the 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 stuff we don't know about our own brains i just find phenomenal about the fact that we don't still truly know how how they work how we can um how we can deal with them as heidi's example i thought was brilliant where you you know if you've got um any other sort of injury if you've got the pain relief you'll you'll take so you'll take some pain relief brilliant you that's great but as soon as we start going 
um, well, we need to do something around the way our brain's working because in effect, it's okay, it's not a muscle, but it's just, it is something that needs exercise. It's something that, that we work with. And we just, it's just got all that stigma wrapped around it. I do think that this, it's a generational thing as well. Um, I, I note now that I think the younger generations talk about mental health with a lot more openness and a lot more compassion, um, a lot more, um, uh, a lot more, not selfishness, a lot more self-awareness um, around how they are doing um, what they're doing, uh, which I think is brilliant. They are, um, certainly, I know um, um, the students and and my own children as well will talk about their own mental health in a, in a lot more open fashion than, uh, than I ever would um, and I ever do. The I guess an example, so whilst the example we're using here is obviously is around pilots, it isn't just pilots. We alluded to the fact that there are other professions out there. And I remember getting a briefing not too long ago, it must have been about four years ago, where um, we the, the, the workplace I was in uh, turned around and said, you know, mental health is really, really important, really important, and we will support you. We have helplines we have this we have that to support you if you've got any problems um feel free to use these resources then it's almost like in in after note small print of but also just remember if you have serious mental health problems and you report them to us then we will have to consider whether we need to report them to the security authorities um about your and and that might have an effect on your security clearance so uh, it's exactly the same thing where they're saying yes we, we you know we want to support you we want your mental health is important However, there's a massive consequence if you even mention it to us. Um, and I don't think that's actually changed a vast amount. So, yes, I mean, this this story is um, it's really interesting. The Obviously, the, the air domain is something I've been around um, for an awfully long time. And and seeing that whole, it, it, you have a whole pilot attitude, um, you know, and, and you can see it starts right from the beginning because there is a, there is a level of... Um, arrogance there is a, an element of look at what we've achieved because it is um pushed into you right from the beginning and uh, because what you know when as i went you know even just to be able to get into pilot training is, is a big deal uh just to be able to sit in an aircraft and take off and do do that sort of it's a big deal and it only gets it only gets bigger and uh, because that level of responsibility you have as well so we can see why it's done but it, we do need to um break it open and allow people um to talk about their mental health um i mean the if we sort of start hitting into about why we need to do that i mean fundamentally you know one of the biggest issues here is around trust um trust both within the system itself so if a pilot comes and says something that they want to be able to highlight how they're feeling what they're doing in order to get the right sort of support in order for them to do the job better but also um as we learn more about this and understand this then where well, where's our trust in the actual aviation industry itself i mean some of the stories you were telling heidi um really highlighted the fact that if we're not supporting our pilots why would we actually trust getting on an aer- airplane when we don't know um what sort of state that person is sat, sat up front i'd rather it was a lot more open and they were getting the support that they uh, they deserved um but i'm going to hand back to you now nick and it, well, where do you think we should go next well, there's there's a there's a lot of places that we can go, and I think we, I think Heidi talked about a lot of these, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and maybe we could just kind of go down the list honestly and see which one of the ones that we've already talked about, which one of the ones that uh, we haven't already talked about, and when it comes to sort of the human factors engineering, the human factors piece of all this, right? We've talked about trust and sort of the the confidence not only within 
the uh, w- within the individual pilot or individual person that is controlling your life in that moment that is that has your life in their hands. But the industry as a whole, if you can't trust this pilot, can you trust other pilots? Because they're all under the same system. And so this is one of the points that the article makes here is that the system needs to change so that way we can start to build that trust again. Um, we can tackle personal relationships. I think we talked a little, I think Heidi, you brought this up a little bit, but there's uh, some of the work-life balance issues, right? When when this type of career is all-consuming, um, you're working long, irregular schedules uh, and, and sort of this impact that this might have on your personal relationships is huge, right? Because if you have a family, are you, are you, are you kidding me? How are you going to spend time with the people that you love when you have these irregular schedules, you got to like plan it out. Um, and then you also have the impacts of stress on those relationships. You know, the pilots are responsible for getting people from point A to point B safely every day. Uh, and that's a huge stress when, you know, any number of things can go wrong in an airplane. Um, or, you know, on even on the tarmac or anything like that. And and to bring that stress home with you can definitely impact your uh, relationships and family life. Um, and then not only that aspect of it, but being away from your family can also have a huge impact on your mental health. If you're not around the people that you love all the time, then, uh, you know, that's that's going to be another factor that that contributes to it. And then the isolation and lack of social support, like we're talking about uh, mental health here and and thinking about that that support mechanism that uh, a therapist plays in traditional mental health um, therapy and medication play in in traditional mental health um, considerations. I think those are largely absent uh, because of the system. And then now you're looking at the social support. Sure, they have other pilots and that's nice to commiserate, but you don't have like sort of the answers within that group. The answers are, Heidi, like you said, to self-medicate or to, um, you know, to, to, to breed that environment of, um, I guess, obscuring what's actually happening for fear of losing your job or, or being grounded or losing your wings, right? So those are some of the things that, I don't know, stood out to me. Um, maybe let's uh, each pick one more sort of major topic and and then we'll kind of wrap this up because Heidi you covered so much in that like in, yeah. in your experience and seriously like that that's why we had you on today that's that's why but, um yeah but I wanted to pick something of what Barry said um to be very cognizant of certain things right and and let's be very clear I'm not a medical doctor nor am I a psychiatrist right this is from this is from years of working in human factors, psychology, engineering, being a former flight student, training, whatever pilot, uh, whatever you want to call that, but living that for like years and years and years, right? Um, and then also still having friends in the industry who still do it and love it passionately. And I watch them still do it. And I'm just so happy for them, right, uh, that they're able to do it. Um, but there's also a lot of grief, right? We like this also not talked about like how many people actually still die in flight training, right? Um, so I alone know of two people that while I was in flight training, two friends uh, um, died um, and the grief is there. And, and you know, what happens when something like that happens? The entire community mourns, 
but nobody is allowed to go and seek help. Nobody. And so, so there's just these things. So two things that I wanted to touch up on is one thing we are now learning and, um, again, not a medical doctor, but just going by the research that is more and more emerging is that our gut health actually influences depression, right? So we're finding out more and more that the hormones, the chemicals, right, that lead to depression in the gut can lead to depression overall. So what comes first, right? Chicken or egg? Was it the depression that led to the depression in the gut or was it the depression in the gut that led to the depression overall, right? So one thing I wanted to insert there is the lifestyle that you live as a pilot with the unhealthy mm. circumstances, right? The, the coffee, the airport food, the, the irregular schedule, all these things, right? That further depresses the gut. So it is not something that is perpetuating mental health, right? So, so that's something. And then another thing you picked up on was that made me almost kind of, I don't know, I instantly got like this smile and I was like, I wonder how that plays is you, you mentioned the new generation, right? The new generation speaks more openly, but let's not forget what the aviation industry is and how it's structured, right? The aviation industry is structured on seniority, right? So you, as a first officer, you do not question authority, right? You do not. Yes, we have learned more in human factors, right? In, in incorporating human factors in the cockpit that we question the pilot and we do the double check decision making and all that. Yes, but seniority is still a thing. So while the new generation may think that the aviation industry is still led by the old generation. And that's not going to change for another 20, 30, 40 years because Gen Xers, I am one and I'm not old yet, not planning on retiring anytime soon. So I, we still have years to go. So that is a little bit of a dichotomy and like that whole questioning seniority, right? And just to make you think, I don't want to put these thoughts into other people's heads, but this is the kind of stuff I see when I walk through an airport, right? Like when you see that older pilot, right? Their uniform is sharp. Their shirt is, is pressed, right? They usually have a higher quality shirt on. They look like they are really dressed sharply. And then you look at the younger pilots and you instantly see that shirt has been worn a hundred times. It's been thrown into the washer and thrown into the dryer. That does not look right. And, you know, the, 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 the tie is over here and the pants look like they need hemming. Like there is really a different world, like captain and, and seniority and, and younger, right? So that just makes me think that we still have so much to go because it needs to be led by the older generation. The younger generation can push for it, absolutely. But until the system gets a little even just a little slightly amended, we're not going anywhere. And I think it's very sad from a human factor standpoint because human factors is such an impact in aviation, right? Like air, how air traffic control was designed, like how these new regulations, how they're all based on like, I mean, remember, 
I don't know sometimes if I mention things that are not known, but like we used to call it pilot error, right? It's not pilot error, right? So we used to blame the pilot by saying pilot error, right? But um, we've thankfully moved on from that. But like, I just think of like the things that we learn in aviation and aeronautical environment, like in the beginning, like we learned the Swiss cheese model, the reasons, you know, the model, how little events lead to catastrophe, right? And little events can be little events in your life from a mental health aspect. So you take the little, you think they're little, but everything accumulated just is waiting for a catastrophe, right? Like you didn't sleep right for the last couple of weeks. You're not eating right, right? You, you're, you're going through tensions with your family. The paycheck didn't come in like, or whatever, like you're, you didn't make ends meet or you had a medical bill or a, a mechanic bill you had to pay, unexpected bill, let's just call it unexpected bill. So you have financial troubles, you have this, you have that, you have that. And everything is just lining up for a catastrophe, right? And the, the weird thing is we learn this in school, aviation school, we learn in flight training, we learn about all these things. But when it comes to applying it in our own industry, it's like, eh, yeah, whatever. Let's just see what happens. So that to me is the crazy part of it is like human factors thrive. Like it is aviation where it bloomed and blossomed in, right? And so we are one of the ones, the, the aviation industry is one of the industries that knows most about it. And yet. <laughs> yeah. Barry, any any closing thoughts from you? No, I think I think in the grand scheme of things, it's um it is really interesting. I'm really pleased that it's out there because I think it's one of these that hopefully it's it's like another block block into the wall of us hopefully take turning a corner on how we appreciate mental health. But I think as Heidi quite rightly points out, we still got a long way to go. Yeah, we do. And and Heidi, so thank you so much for for requesting the story this week. I think we mentioned in the pre-show that we'll kind of take requests from guests if they're experts on the field and uh, or or have you know experience in it and Heidi I think today like you've really just taken this thing that we have uh, I don't know Barry and I would have would have had a very superficial conversation about it I feel uh, I, I don't know Barry you you seem to think differently <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'm gonna put Barry down kind of mood today and <laughs> put him in his place but but no honestly uh, the the experience that you bring to the table and and the discussion um, that you bring is is truly appreciated so uh, thank you to Heidi for selecting our topic this week and thank you to our friends over at Scientific American for our news story this week if you want to follow along we do post links to all the original articles on our roundups and our blog uh, you can also join us on Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more speaking of Discord I'm just going to make a quick little aside. We've got lots of chatter in there about the AI, generative AI in there from last week. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Hey, we love our patrons. A huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Uh, Patrons like you truly do keep the lights on and all of us running over here. And um, so uh, today we'd like to talk about our show sponsor here. And the new secretary wrote us a script to to say, so I'm going to read this verbatim and see how this comes out. Are you a Human Factors psychology or design professional looking to get your message heard by thousands of others in the field? Look no further. Our podcast offers sponsorship opportunities where we will read 150 words of your choice on the show every week for the duration of your pledge. You will also be featured on our homepage and have a permanent link on our sponsor page on our website. We will announce your sponsorship on all our social media platforms and give you a special role in our Discord channel for direct communication with listeners. This tier is perfect for consulting agencies and companies hiring in the field, professional organizations looking to promote initiatives, and specialized hardware or software companies targeting human factors, UX professionals as their core demographic. Act fast as as this offer is limited to one agency, organization, or company at a time and is subject to availability. If you have any questions about our sponsorship, please contact us at humanfactorscast.media slash contact. Excellent job, Secretary. Love it. All right, we're going to switch gears and get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from. It came from. That's right. This is the part of the show we like to call. It came from. This is where we search all over the internet to bring you all topics from the community. Uh, what what everyone's talking about. It's it's the uh, it's the hubbub. If you find these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're watching or listening to help other people find this stuff. Uh, our first one here tonight is by Design Jester on the User Experience subreddit. They write, I've done a bit of UX over my career and read a book or two, but wanted to pursue it properly full time. Despite being relatively new to the role, the agency has chosen to put a senior in my job title. Do you think this is a good thing or could this lead to issues in the future when I apply for other positions? Barry, uh, what do you think about being assigned the, the title senior, whatever it is that you're doing, when uh, when maybe you don't feel like a senior? Oh, it's fine. Enjoy yourself. Knock yourself out. Um, the, uh, there's two ways to look at this. Is I mean, firstly, look at it from from the company perspective. If they're wanting to assign you, you know, it does them good uh, from a public perception um, to have um, seniors and principals and and all these different titles. So, it, in on the um, on the public stage, it it, it it makes them look good that the fact that you're a senior designer, uh, sorry, a senior UX designer. Um, but make sure that if they are happy, you know, to call you a senior, are you being paid at a senior rate? Um, so just, you know, you can then use that to your advantage to make sure that you're get you're getting paid commensurate with the title. The other bit as well is um, some people try and compare and contrast across um, different businesses on titles. And whilst there is, um, you know, you can sort of read across a senior in one business might be the equivalent of a senior in another um, or a principal in one principal in another, they are, you know, 
companies don't necessarily agree a finite set of uh, criteria about what a senior involves. They'll, each company will generally have their own criteria. So uh, just because it sounds the same doesn't necessarily mean it is the same. Um, take them for all the money, I would. Heidi, what do you think? If, if you were given senior um, in your in your first job, would you be worried or would you just, would you be happy and take it? Well, for... For me, it's like there's a lot of things going on here, right? Because I obviously, as we all are very experienced now at this point in our careers, we're not beginners anymore. I look at it a little bit differently from from other aspects too. Like sometimes you also don't know what headcount went open, right? And what they wanted to hire. So like if there's like a specific headcount that you have to use in order to hire that person, it might be connected to a certain title because a certain cost center is covering that job. So sometimes your titles also have a lot to do with politics and headcounts and who's hiring and how can they get you on board, right? Um, as far as the senior goes, um, I don't know if I was a beginner and I had the senior title, I would probably get a little too full of myself, <laughs> but, but, but I think just roll with it. Right. Like it's not like, I think the other way around would be harsher for me. I think, <laughs> I think if you were senior, right. And you're not getting the title, I think that's a little harsher, but if you're just getting the senior title because they can't, they don't actually know what they're hiring for, then just roll with it. Like try to learn as much as you can and try to get that experience that is like equivalent to your title. If it's what you like, you know, because from what the story I read, like it's not even something they did previously. So and I'm not sure if that's even the job they want. So for now, I would just roll with it and see what the job really is because they might have just mistitled you. Um, and you actually are doing your job, right? Um, and let's not forget UX is such a trend word right now that there is a lot of UX jobs out there that are not UX. So let's be very clear on that. That's why I would say just roll with it for a couple of months, see what it really is. And if you think it is too much UX and you don't like it and you want to go back to what you actually did, then do that. I mean, if you're early in your career, then who cares? There's going to be a job around the corner the next next month, too. Sounds like we're all kind of in agreement. It's fine. It's fine. You'll be fine. I, my, my comments on this are basically buckle in, buddy. You're, you're in for a ride uh, <laughs> if if you feel like you're maybe not qualified for that position. But also, you know, embrace it. They've they've assigned that to you based on what you put forward in the interview. And unless you were lying in the interview, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Um, work yeah. hard, earn the title, uh, you know, that's. I mean, the only thing to say as the end to it is like, okay, well, if you're getting paid for a senior and they want you to do senior things and you can't meet that standard, it might get very anxiety ridden. Like a lot, there's going to be a lot of pressure, but also if they're not paying you a senior salary, and just giving you that title and then expect from you to perform as a senior. That's when I would start having conversations. <laughs> I would. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you're not getting paid what the title says. All right. We got uh, another one here from the UX research subreddit. This is by another sneaky Kiki. Uh, I, I studied. Comments. I, I, stu 
<laughs> I studied psych and it was recommended to look into UX. Uh, I know I'd have to do a boot camp, but I've heard it's hard to get a UX job in this market. Is there a type of job where I could get good introduction to the UX world? So, uh, Heidi, what what are what are your thoughts on this? First of all, I'd like to know where that's happening. There's shortage of UX jobs. Um, I think the last time I checked, it was like 16,000 jobs were listed on LinkedIn and Indeed with the title UX in it. Um, so uh, number one, don't worry, there's plenty. Uh, number two, um, you studied psych with a background in psych. I'm wondering why people are pushing you in UX. You should like look more into human factors because that would be an easier entry for you coming from the science-based things that you studied and transitioning into human factors would be a lot easier for you than going into UX because UX titles are often associated with a lot more um, designing things kind of. So I would intro into human factors before that. So that would be my tip. Like I would be a little cautious of that. That sounds fair. Um, I do have this um, this thing around when they mentioned boot camps. I sort of shuddered slightly. Um, I didn't I want think... to touch on it exactly for that, even though it's in my notes. I did not want to mention the boot camps. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, I have a sort of a hot and cold relationship with them, to be honest, because part of me thinks that yes, they're just just to get a little bit of a an oomph into do I like to do something? I like this idea of a short sharp thing but we just seem to be so reliant on this idea of you boot, if you do a boot camp then you know everything to do with the role and he's like mm, not so much um but vocational training absolutely let, let's do some of that and so i think with with this type of thing um i agree with you heidi the you know look more into the um into the human factors domain i think you'll get a lot more um satisfaction out of that i do believe that ux is, is is a bit of a it is a trendy phrase at the moment but i do think it hits a particular um, part of the human factors uh, spectrum and um yeah I, I think looking at the them them type of roles that are more you know you can learn an awful lot on the job um and and learn um a variety of different things and i can say that from experience i've learned an awful lot from some amazing people um rather than just going straight down the academic route um but the and that, this idea that yeah Similar to what you said, Heidi. In terms, of, here in the UK, there are loads of UX and HF jobs out there. We are desperate for practitioners in the field. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, if if it shouldn't be hard to get a job, quite frankly. Nick, what do you think? They're not shy about it. Yeah, well, yes, that. <laughs> they're not shy about it. They will. They will. They don't care what your job title is or where you work. They will come and dark recruit you underneath. <laughs> it's, it's just. Hey, I really, really quick. About. I'm going to jump in here and almost hijack this and talk about boot camps really quick because you guys are both eh on it, right? I mean, like, I'm not, yeah, I'm so, because look, like, my, my opinion of, on boot camps has changed a little bit over the years. Uh, is because uh, I used did to be very, did you go to a boot camp and go, I oh, did I not do it. No, 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 no. Look, look, look. All right. Here's the thing with boot camps boot camps are made by people who want to make money off of you by saying, we can teach you everything about UX in one weekend. You want to do that? Yeah, come on, give me money. I can, I can do that, right? So that's that's kind of where I think about boot camps. However, 
However, there can be value in taking boot camps for the people who are mm-hmm. trying to transfer into the UX or human factors field who have transferable skills. Now, you're not going to be operating at the same level as somebody who's had years and years of experience, but this is a good way for you to get your feet wet, introduced to a topic to see if it's something that you really enjoy. Okay. So if it's an exploratory thing, you get in for one weekend, the commitment's very low. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that boot camps should be a replacement for a proper education for experience. It's not. It's not going to get you that job from just taking it for one weekend, but it will give you a good sense of what's going on in the field, what current trends are, what you can expect from the field, and whether or not you want to pursue it. Uh, It can also be a good refresher for those people who want to transfer in from adjacent fields. So I'm, I'm with you in terms of using boot camps as the education. Fine. Yeah. But when it comes to, when it comes to using them as tools in your toolbox, you know, don't, don't overlook it. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn somebody away from a job position because they had boot camp on their resume. I'll just put it and that now, way. And now, if you look into the show notes, Nick's uh, boot camp on UX design is is, is going live, <laughs> and we hope to see you all there. God, can you imagine if I if I did use this as an opportunity to announce a boot camp? I'm not. I'm not. I would. This would be my last time on ever <laughs> if you did that. <laughs> I see. I now think there is there is a stream here that we should all just do a boot camp of some description. We should and do a two way boot camp. We should present a boot camp, and we should go and attend a boot camp, and then come back and discuss. Yes, right, so, I think uh, so. Hey, I mean, back to this I agree. Question. I agree with you, Nick. Though I think, yeah, I mean, I just I never like touching on it. Like I never like bringing it up because it gets so convoluted. And like, yeah, they are great, but they're only great for this one particular purpose. And then they get carried away. And I also, uh, to your point, though, not every boot camp is great to get a first taste, right? So I'd be very picky with which boot camp I'm choosing. Exactly. Yeah. You got to do your research before you get Anyway, back to the question. I want to make sure I answer this. Uh, there, There is um, the question again, where can you get a good introduction to the UX world in terms of like beginner jobs? There's a weird flux in the market right now where people expect juniors to kind of know everything, uh, at least from talking with other colleagues. There's there's some weird flux in the market, but internships are another good opportunity for you. If you want to look at internships, that is a place where people don't necessarily expect you to know everything. They expect you to be very junior, even more junior than junior positions where you can kind of get in, learn something under somebody else's wing, get out, uh, depending on the length and time duration of the internship. Okay. Uh, we got one more question. Let's get into it. Uh, this is by Disastrous Nature on the User Experience subreddit. UX has a scientific component built upon psychology, engineering, design, etc., but without scientific training, boot camps, uh, <laughs> some may be unknowingly adopting pseudoscience into their work. What problematic or even dangerous pop, pop science would you like UX and human factors professionals to stop using? Heidi, you're up. Hey, you're up. Um, well, I would like my biggest, uh, no, scratch all of that. Cut, let's start again. I don't like when people do usability studies and then they say, well, we have proof, right? Um, and let me elaborate on that. Because what you find in usability tests, when you have like five people in a usability test, you can see 
a trend. You can see something happening, right? You can see a response to a certain design feature, yada, yada, yada. All those things. Great. Awesome. That's what usability testing is for. But what I want people to stop doing is conducting inexperienced people, moderating and conducting usability tests, and then intertwining their already perceived notion of what isn't and is working on the design, and then just cherry picking the answers from users and participants to support what they want to be supported, right? Because that is not scientific. That is what we call humbug. That is BS. That is, I can make that up in, 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 in my sleeve. I can cherry pick anything from the internet and say that supports what I want to say, right? So I think that's where I get really frustrated sometimes when I see this like UX intertwined with HF and then because I work in medical device development, I work in something that is highly regulated, like I am not going to make the statement of this supports this. My sentences start with this may potentially indicate that because I don't have proof for it yet. Because if you want to have proof for it, you got to you got to like design your study to be repeatable on a scientific basis. You got to put up a, a hypothesis and you got to prove it and you got to use real statistics, right? So that is my biggest pet peeve. Like I do not like it. Mary. That's fair. I mean, actually the way you describe it, Heidi, is I would say that that's politics. That's exactly what politicians do. But anyway, um, this yeah. is this is one of the reasons why I think actually human faculty is such a cool discipline. It's so young that we know that we want to um, base it in scientific scientific discipline. Uh, but I think two that get that get me going is um, is Myers Briggs when you do my let's say sort of Myers Briggs assessments and you come out with the personality types. And the irony is that actually most people who do Myers Briggs and come out with like say ENTJ or whatever this sort of thing, it's broad enough that actually most people um, you know will. Um, have affordance with with what they've come out with and if you use it as a bit of an icebreaker or something like that that's where i think it actually has value it does because it means you can go through things you get if you're not used to self-assessment and things like that it's actually a really good thing to be a bit self-reflective and come out with some sort of result it's when you get so serious about the result and think that that's what you and, and will never change over time that's that's where you start to get into problems as well um maslow's hierarchy of needs is another one where i use that quite a lot in um in lectures and stuff because i find it fascinating um but if you if you take if you go too deep into it you automatically uncover problems with it but there's a high level um bit of a bit of a discussion piece then I find them useful. They 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 useful guides um, or you know useful talking points. Um, we don't necessarily have to take everything quite so seriously. It's a bit like you said, Heidi. It's, it's, you've got to know um, where the boundaries of what you're discussing uh, discussing yeah. um, are there. Nick, what about you? What 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 do you um, what, what do you think you're doing? I think there's a tendency to rely on research a lot um, <laughs> in in some instances where. Uh, once they get comfortable with what research can do, they almost see it as a crutch and say, oh, well, we need to do uh, we need to do research on this before we can actually move forward. And it's, it's not like, well, no, we have answers to this because of science that we've done in the past uh, based on, you know, years of scientific literature. We don't need to do a research study on how this might affect our our 
our software, right? Like we can do this without the research. Like I can tell you what the answer is because we've seen it before. Um, and we develop models and equations that get at this thing. Uh, so, so stop using research as a crutch. I think that's, that's kind of the, the thing that I would say. It's not necessarily pop science, but um, you don't need research for everything. And maybe that's me griping. Anyway, we're at the this last part of the show we like to call One More Thing. It needs no introduction. Uh, and I think tonight, One More Thing will be like 20-second sound bites since we're almost at time. So, so Heidi, your 20-second sound bite, One More Thing. Myers-Briggs, now that you brought it up, Barry, like, <laughs> I'm just going to go and change it. Like, I would like everybody to go on the internet and educate themselves how the Myers-Briggs was developed and how it's a bunch of BS about how some lady who is bored, who looked into this, decided to come up with all these things and personality traits, and they are not scientifically proven. Nothing in it is scientific, nothing, nothing. She did absolutely nothing following scientific principles. So the Myers-Briggs, yeah, great. Icebreaker, I would say, nope, I hate icebreaker games. I wish they would stop doing that when you get hired. I hate this stupid, sitting in a circle with a new team and let's all go through and answer one high and one low and do this and do that. Like we absolutely forget that most people are not extroverts. Like as love, as much as we all want to believe that we're all such great extroverts, we're not, especially not in the scientific community. So stop right. going around asking me about my Meyer Bricks results or Myers Bricks results or playing icebreaker games when it's my first day at work and I'm already intimidated and I live with anxiety driven fears that you're all going to hate me anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> no. so there's my one more thing. <laughs> now, Nick loves a good icebreaker. So um, the, and actually mine sort of follow, follows on from that. The, um, it's i went to a lecture this week um on the art of science communication and the fact that we we don't have that we automatically assume just because we know something the fact that other people should as well and the the, the breadth of you know the, how conspiracy theories evolve and all and all this sort of stuff and really the, the the driving force was that we as science communicators uh, within the full breadth of it need to also have an um an extra bit of teaching about how we communicate that science which I think here on podcasts like this, we we are obviously amazing examples of doing this. Um, but actually, we are few and far between. There's not enough science communicators out there, and we need more of them. Nick, what about you? What's your one more thing? I got into pegging, pegboarding, pegboarding. <laughs> got him. I, get, I bought a pegboard. I bought a pegboard. There's your soundbite for today. Yeah, exactly. You knew what I was doing. There, I bought a pegboard on sale on Black Friday uh, because one thing that's been sort of an issue for me is that I can't find any of my tools despite me having certain places for them. It's part of ADHD. Uh, and yeah, right. And so I, I bought a pegboard. I bought a pe Okay, guys, come on. It's the end of the show. I bought a pegboard so that way I can see everything visually where it, where it lives and I can just reach out and go, oh, hair dryer. Boom. There it is. So the all so of all the things on your board, different colors and all oh, right, okay. <laughs> ah, and that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you liked the story this week uh, and enjoy some of the discussion about uh, the human factors issues around uh, mental health, I encourage you to go listen to episode 236, where we talk about better defining the term 
mental health. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. Uh, did you like having Heidi on for that? I sure did. For more in-depth discussion, join us on our Discord community. Like I said, it's lighting up over there with a bunch of discussion about generative AI. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, just keep on listening. Two, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you are right now. That is really helpful and free for you to do. Three, you can tell your friends about us. Uh, that also helps that word of mouth. And four, if you have the financial means to, you want to become a show sponsor? I don't know. Or if you want access to Human Factors Minute, become a patron. Um, that really does help us financially. So that's, that's probably the best way you can support us. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Heidi Mirzad, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can our listeners thank go and find you. you if they want to talk about more of your experience? LinkedIn, uh, Insta, and Twitter, all, all HFUX research. And uh, you should be able to find me on any of those and the company or anybody who works at my company to, to have fun conversations about human factors. Awesome. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about uh, where your mind went when I said pegboards? So if you want to find out more about Nick's pegboard and my thoughts on that, then uh, you can find me at uh, Twitter. Twitter's still there at the moment, so at Basil underscore K. Or if you want to come and listen to good interviews with um, practitioners within the human factors field, then you can find me at 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory because it's more than just common sense.